Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show, the UK Geek Science Fiction Fantasy and Horror Podcast, episode 520, taped on Thursday the 18th of January 2024 at 23.32.20. Ah, yeah, back again. Admittedly a day late taping this, though you'll still get it on Friday. Uh, The reason for that is I'm hanging on by the skin of my teeth. We'll go into that in a completely separate podcast when I do the geek life thing. Just talk loads and loads of topics. But tonight, we are staying on topic and highly focused like a laser beam on Hammer House of Horror. We have been revisiting this 1980 TV series chronologically. And the next story that I'm going to tackle is The House That Bled to Death. I've got a few pre-show things to talk about. First of all, don't worry, it's still relevant. In pod 513, I said that I didn't know if it was worth buying the Blu-ray, because the DVD is so much cheaper, and of course you can watch it on television on ITVX. I have since changed my mind, although the Blu-ray is highly overpriced, it may just be worth it. I've got a quote here regarding the Blu-ray. Here we go then. Hammer House of Horror was shot on 35mm, which was highly unusual for a UK TV series at the time but Hammer effectively treated the series as 13 short feature films. That's a review of the Hammer House of Horror Blu-ray by Steve Withers of avforums.com on October the 30th, 2017. So yeah, if you can afford it, get it. I don't have it. I have the DVD. Considering it. Maybe. Alright, the house that bled to death. Production notes. Notable cast. The male lead, William, is played by Nicholas Ball. I remember him from that Private Eye show on television, Hazel. He was also in the extremely schlocky film... Life Force, which I have to revisit one day. I like that movie. It is so schlocky, it's so terrible. But I'm a fan of the author who wrote the novel and other novels. It is dated. It is (laughs) embarrassing. It's a great film. I'm straying. His wife, Emma, is played by an actress named Rachel Davies. Mo 
most notable for us geeks is she was Camilla, the sexy vampire in the Doctor Who story State of Decay from 1980, which we covered back in pod 454, not that long ago. One of their neighbours, George, is played by Brian Croucher. Well, if you're a UK geek, if you're a geek of the 80s, you'll know who this is. This is Blake Seven's second Crazy Travis during the year 1979. Oh. Why did Stephen Grief leave? <laughs> this guy came in. Oh, you have to see his portrayal of the character to believe it. It's funny that they never tried explaining it in the TV show. They just brought this other guy who looked nothing like Stephen Grief. They're both big, tough-looking men, but that's about all they have in common. (laughs) I was thinking about this the other day. How would you explain such a change on Blake 7? Uh, I was thinking of everything from maybe... Only the reasoning part of the Stephen Grief Travis brain survived some attack or accident and had to be transferred into this other body. But then that doesn't explain why the new Travis also has an eye missing. and uh, It's complicated. I'm sure I could work that out on paper if someone would pay me to write a script. And it's worth a try. Brian Croucher is also famous for the Doctor Who story, The Robots of Death. Oh, I can't remember the character he played. There's also a dodgy, creepy estate agent type named A.J. Powers. This chap was played by the actor Milton Johns who is known for, well, several roles in Doctor Who. He was in The Enemy of the World, which is a Patrick Troughton story that I would like to re-revisit. Maybe not on the podcast, because we've already talked about it on the podcast, but just personally re-watch that again, because that was quite a cool and interesting one. I'm sorry, I got distracted. Where was I? Okay, yeah, Uh, Milton Johns, the enemy of the world. He was also in the android invasion and the invasion of time. As well as that, even more sci-fi credibility, he was Captain Burwell in The Empire Strikes Back. He was one of Vader's Imperial officers during the whole Cloud City thing and the freezing of Han Solo. The director was Tom Clegg, who also directed a bit of Space 1999. The writer was David Lloyd, of whom I could find few other credits. 
wrote on a few other programs. I didn't really pay attention to them. They weren't geeky. They weren't science fiction, fantasy, and horror, as far as I could see. And then there's nothing else on IMDb. That happens sometimes. People come and go in media. The producer, as always, Roy Skaggs, ex-Hammer Films, formed spin-off Cinema Arts, returned to Hammer, moved production to Bucks, and created Hammer House of Horror. Locations, various in and around Buckinghamshire in 1980. Specific to this episode, a rundown-looking semi in Cherborough Road was used. There are some scenes in front of a butchery shop in Mentmore Road. Both those places are in High Wycombe. And there was also some scenes at a luxury house with a swimming pool at Loudwater. All those places that I've just mentioned are in Buckinghamshire. The same county that I'm recording from. Production companies, Hammer Films, Cinema Arts and ITC Entertainment, Distribution ITV. Music, the memorable theme music, I must have said this line a million times, was composed by ex-jazz pianist Roger Webb. I have not heard any of his jazz stuff. Broadcast. This was episode 5 of 13, first broadcast on the 11th of October 1980. It had a 54-minute running time, around one hour if you include ads, and follows Growing Pains, which I talked about in pod 513. Media. There's the 2002 DVD, Hammer House of Horror, The Complete Collection. There's the 2017 aforementioned Blu-ray Hammer House of Horror, the complete series, and, as I say numerous times when I'm doing one of these revisits, you can watch it for free on ITVX in the UK from last year. Zeitgeist. What was happening on the 11th of October 1980? Well, number one in the UK was the police's Don't Stand So Close to Me. I was a fan of the police, but I remember my much older cousins were really into the police, and that made it a bit naff later on. What else? The USSR, do you remember that? Tested a nuke in a tunnel. On the archipelago Nevea Zemlia at 0709-5747. So that's great. A nuke went off on that day, earlier that morning. <laughs> okay, here's where I insert a clip. I always say at this point I may or may not do that, but such is a level of schlock in this story that I am definitely doing that. While you're enjoying that clip, I'm going to have a quick break, and then I'll be back. See you in a moment. Oh, and before I go for my break, if anyone's curious, the mic I'm using is the Shaw SM7B. Again, as 
I did last time, as I will probably do for the foreseeable future, unless I'm recording in another room, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I don't know, because I'm a nerd. Okay, really, enjoy the clip. She says it's blood. Blood? This story has a happy ending. Where the hell did you get that? Hello, my friends. I am back. And the traffic started again. And also, just before taking the break, I press the stop button on the recorder. So I'm going to end up with two files tonight. I'm going to join them up. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Okay, next. Let us get on to the story. In the house that bled to death, a creepy A.J. Powers, an estate agent, arranges for William, Emma and their daughter, Sophia, to move to a house where a man poisoned his wife and chopped up and hid her remains. They are immediately and continually plagued by sinister events. There's a leaking gas fire that traps the wife. The husband is trapped behind a door and the walls bleed. Later on, poor young Sophia's cat has its throat cut and a burst pipe at her birthday party drenches the children with blood. While the wife, Emma, is treated for shock, the house becomes a press sensation. Visiting the hospital, their neighbours are told that William and Emma were not married and that the family has left. We cut to a luxury villa in California three years later, where we find out from William and Emma's conversation that the haunted house was all a ruse by author A.J. Powers to drum up publicity for a book about the staged ordeal. The only one not in on this grand deception was Sophia. She is clearly traumatised by the whole episode. We see her on her own in her room. She reads A.J. Powers' The House That Bled, opens the suitcase that she left the murder house with, goes to her parents' room, there is something hidden behind her back, and then attacks them, the father, with the original poisoner's cookery and murders William. And that's where we end on that schlocky, shocky ending. Schlocking ending. Okay, let us move on to my thoughts. At the beginning of the episode, I didn't really talk about this, there is a scene of the old man poisoning his wife's drinking chocolate. That is hilarious. Because that old guy makes the worst drinking chocolate I've ever seen. He tips boiled over scalded milk into a cup and dumps into the cup poison, sugar, 
chocolate powder and it's all floating about in the cup. All I can guess is that they were rushing that scene because I wouldn't drink that chocolate. Not just because it was poisoned, but because it looked like crap. <laughs> there is a doll that Sophia finds, which is comedically horrible. It is a comically horrific creepy doll. The prop is obviously a modern plastic doll, repainted dead white. It is totally unnecessary as foreshadowing, because that's what it is. It's a foreshadowing device to indicate sinister events to come, because the whole episode is absolutely chock full of sinister events. It doesn't stop. Well, I don't see the point of it. Don't see the point of the zombie doll. Ah, okay. Let us get on to Brian Croucher. Our friend, Brian Croucher. The moment I see Brian Croucher, I think Mad Travis. Mad Space Commander Travis from Blake 7. Although in this, he plays a nice enough, blokish sort of bloke. He is the next door neighbour, the husband. There's also a wife, I can't remember her name. Though he does blatantly play the peeping Tom, and spies on his neighbour's naked wife. Right in front of his own as well, through the bedroom window. What to make of this? Well, this was the 70s and 80s. I distinctly remember that kind of behaviour, and I wasn't involved in it because I was too young. <laughs> but I do remember that. It was a completely different time. And we are going to talk about how different a time it was in other cultural aspects pretty soon. Still on Mr. Croucher, there is a scene where he gives a lift to William. He drives this Austin something or other. I'm not sure if it's a Maxi. Might be a Maxi. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is... He's driving, and the camera appears to be looking in from outside the car. I don't know how they did that. Again, still on Brian Croucher. Watching him act, I think he's definitely a trooper, in spite of his gruff exterior. He is a considerate actor, and you see this from the way that Croucher waits for the woman who plays his wife to be the first to proceed up the stairs in a scene where they hear a scream. Which is weird, really. If you heard a scream, you'd be up the stairs and <laughs> let your wife go first. Yeah, you wouldn't do that in real life. That must be the result of bad direction and blocking when you decide where everyone's going to stand. The dead cat with its throat slashed open. Whether it was a prop or not, well, <laughs> what else could it be? <laughs> of course it's a prop, it's not a real cat. It was properly gory. Whether that happened in the story because of a broken window pane, or ghostly flying cookeries? 
Yes, there's a pair of rusted cookeries that the old fellow chopped up his wife with, and they find a pair of those in the house, and they seem to have a bit of a life of their own. Or whether it was, and this is the more disturbing theory, done by William or Emma or AJ Powers with her own hands. That is a disturbing thought. But by whatever method the deadly and dastardly deed was accomplished, it was a nasty scene. The cat death scene is followed by a brutal example of old-school parenting. I told you we'd talk about 70s and 80s culture again, when the mother shakes, then slaps Sophia to shock her out of distress. Yes, that kind of parental behaviour would not be unusual back then. And unfortunately, now as well, I've seen parents be horrible to their children nowadays, when all this stuff is highly illegal. But anyway... Let's uh, move on to the next thing, and leave behind the social commentary. There is a burst pipe in the ceiling, raining blood down on a children's birthday party. It is the centerpiece, <laughs> or party piece, of this story. Yeah, that whole showering with blood scene is pretty shocking. And they definitely saved that for the last big shock before we get to the end twist. The filming location, the last one I mentioned in Loudwater in Buckinghamshire, that house was standing in for a Californian villa of a very rich person. They must film the... And at the beginning, because later on, the weather seems a lot more grey. It's a bit of a stretch, but it does seem to work, as long as the camera doesn't move around too much. Because I have seen shots on websites with a wider angle, and that does not look like California. But it does work here. Ah, there's always something new to learn about filmmaking. Just going by the title, The House That Bled to Death, that is obviously one of the murderous house type tropes, like Amityville and films like that. It was high on the gruesome scale, which it deserves a clap for, and had a nasty twist ending. I think the acting is good as well. The only thing that really lets it down is the direction, which feels like a hack job. And that's about all I have to say about the house that bled to death. We seem to have whizzed through that one. As for trivia, well, I don't have anything specific, so in lieu of a juicy tidbit of terror, here are William's final words that he says to his daughter standing menacingly at their bedroom doorway. 
I told you not to come in without knocking. Where the hell did you get that? No! <laughs> and you can guess the choppity choppity stuff that happens after that. And the moral of this, if you are lucky enough to have children, be good to them, or else. They may just attack you with the cookery. No, that's not going to happen. I'm just saying, just be nice to your children. Ah. I've actually finished now. We're in the after show section. I don't know, is there anything else to talk about? Regarding this, I don't have anything else in my show notes. I'm just winging it at the moment. Something that I don't like to do. Um, we talked about Blake 7, didn't we? And Travis, yeah. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about Blake 7 lately. I don't think it's time for me to do a revisit yet, but... Oh, I really miss that show. And, as I have said before, I do wish that the BBC, they've got a Hooniverse now, why don't they have a Blakeyverse? Blakey? No, no, not that Blake. Blake 7, not on the buses. Oh, one more thing about this revisit of Hammer House of Horror. If I manage to remember when this is all over and done with, I plan to rate the episodes in order of from best to worst. Remind me if I don't do that, or if you don't want to hear that, don't remind me. That sounded very passive-aggressive, but yeah, I've been feeling it lately. I've been feeling a bit irritated by the lack of response from listeners. It's not as if I just slapped this together. So, please, if you do enjoy this, show your appreciation. It motivates me. After all, I'm only... Oh, I was going to say I'm only human. That's debatable. Ah. Okay, let's see. Yeah, don't have anything else. The next one is... Yeah, I can't remember again. I can't remember what's coming next. Wait a minute, what day is it? 19th now. It's the 18th when we started, 19th. So the next one's the 22nd. The next one is the Mixed Bag of Geek. I'll be taping that on Monday. This episode you're hearing now, I'll edit it tomorrow morning, and it should be available sometime tomorrow. I don't want to say that I'm back on schedule, because I'm not. <laughs> no, I don't plan to be, but I'm roughly trying to release an episode on Wednesday and Friday. So it's taping usually on Monday and Wednesday, and then uploading on Wednesday and Friday. Again, though, don't expect that. This has never been a well-planned podcast, though I do my best. Oh yeah, the other thing I was going to say, now I remember, uh, that guy who played AJ Powers, what was his name? Milton Johns. Yeah, the guy who played Imperial Captain, what's his name? He has been in a lot of geek stuff, but he's also been on a lot of television in general. 
So, if you're into 80s TV, you'll probably see him all the time. Oh, what else? Oh yeah, this, again, not in the show notes, but something I just wanted to add. If I forget I've said this now, I'll probably say it again some other time, but I have stopped doing obituaries of notable people in Geek and otherwise who have died because, frankly, it's too depressing. And also, we'd be here forever. Because I do talk about a lot of older stuff, and people are always popping their clogs. So unless it's, yeah, someone incredibly um, prevalent to geekdom, I'm probably not going to do it. And that is about it. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my revisit of The House That Bled to Death. What a great title. Now it's time to say goodbye. You can find me at RoyMature.com. Please review, rate, support, and recommend the show to a friend or mortal enemy. The time at the end of the show is... 002010. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. Bye.